Welcome to episode 88 of Love That Album podcast. In South Carolina. Long-time listeners to the show will know of Morris's passion for singer-songwriters who tell great stories. The focus of this show features two of the best in Gillian Welsh and David Rawlings. Morris is once again joined by Tom Quay from the Down in the Hole podcast for a discussion about their album, The Harrow and the Harvest, from 2011. Eight years in the making, they continue to deliver finely crafted songs with just two voices and two guitars about subjects such as death, murder, lust, cads, obsolescence and the loss of friends. Yet, their songs have a vitality to them and the melodies that stick with you. Even after repeated listenings, you will still pick up something new. Morris and Tom have played these songs hundreds of times and will attest to this. Eric Reanimator returns for his Album I Love segment to talk about a dark album of his own, Brave by Marillion, released in 1994. So, sit back, grab a whiskey, find a dark room and stay tuned for a macabre episode of Love That Album. Nobody worries about kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? to episode 88 of Love That Album podcast. My name's Morris. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, we were supposed to record this podcast in February and you know things just didn't work out like that. And I know some of you are thinking, what the hell? You only record one of these episodes per month. You can't even get your shit together to record an episode <laughs> once a month. Well, you know, sorry, I'm an old man and that's what happens. Sometimes I need to take my medication and it goes a little bit funny. So I need a month's break. All right, so here we are in March. What do you want for a free podcast? I'm getting aggro and, and it's, it's already only the beginning of the episode. It's, I can't believe that. Anyway, thank you so much for joining me. If this is your first time on the podcast, just ignore that angry old man stuff and welcome on board. Uh, what I tend to do on this program is I talk about albums, and 99% of the time, they're albums that I love, hence the name of the program. And what I also like to do is welcome a different guest host every time to talk about you know, an album that we mutually admire. Now, what's happened this time, I think for the first time in the show's history, I've had the same guest two shows running. What the hell? But it just so happened that I finally found a man who wanted to talk about an album I've been itching to talk about for a long time. So let's first introduce the man on the other end, and it's Tom Quee, host of the Down in the Hole podcast, coming back for his second show in a row. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Morris. Thank you so much. This is a, a pleasure. And as you say, 
um this album is just outstandingly good like like it's one of those albums that i've just i've been listening i think came out in 2011 so this album's been out like five years now and is constantly been on rotation for me there are there are feelings and aspects to this album that i just i can't really get enough of and the imagery and and just 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 some of the ideas and ideologies running through it's it's outstanding i can't wait to dig in i think uh, we'll definitely be going through a lot of that sort of territory and i i guess given that your penchant for those people who haven't heard dan and the whole podcast uh, mm-hmm. which is where you discuss, along with uh, your good friend Sam Wiles, talking yes. about the uh, the music and the lyrics of Tom Waits, that mm-hmm. this album, even though you know musically it's you know, very different to the sort of stuff that Tom Waits does, but lyrically it's definitely full of the rich sort of imagery that is, you know, I, I guess, you know, really strong fodder for Dan and the Hole. For those people who didn't hear last month's Love That Album and who haven't listened to Dan and the Hole podcast, please give a little bit of a, a rundown as to what you do, what you cover. Uh, Dan and the Hole, as you say, is uh, entirely Tom Waits-based. Is myself and my friend Sam. We are uh, old school friends. We're both uh, Englishmen, I should stress as well. We've been obsessed with Tom Waits since uh, maybe late, like late 2008 or so, so coming up to eight years now. And um, we always want to do a podcast together and we, every episode is us tackling every single Tom Waits album in order. But we don't just love Tom Waits to the point of doing kind of studio albums. We also write a blog about Tom Waits. And we started now. I don't think we started doing this on our previous episode of Joe Jackson when I was kind of reeling off of the things to do about Tom Waits. We also do bonus episodes uh, on YouTube, YouTube-exclusive kind of deleted scenes, kind of orphans, if you will, <laughs> where, we dig in, <laughs> where we dig into uh, dig into Tom Waits even further. But yeah, so we started off with Closing Time. And at the moment of recording, we're just gearing up for The Black Rider, which is Tom's final island release is kind of quite obscure. Uh, Michael Wilson, William Burroughs, kind of Kurt Vile-esque, mm. kind of, you know, a Faustian bargain kind of musical. It's a, it's a fascinating document. It's not to everyone's taste. And a lot of people, a lot of our listeners have been getting in contact and they're really excited to listen to it. Not because they like it, because they just want to hear what we have to say about it, because it's, um, it's very out there. If anyone's heard songs like uh, Russian Dance or Oily Nights, then you know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't, listen to them now, because they are, you know, they're, they are barbaric. They are, they are mayhemic they are they are they are brilliant in my eyes but you know not as good to any people so yeah that is down in the hole and you can find us um if you just google tom waits podcast you down in the whole podcast we are at tom waits podcast on twitter and we're on itunes and youtube and all that sort of thing so yeah if you want to check us out that would be uh, that would be much appreciated very very good and if you're already a member of the love that album facebook page tom does go put links to the show so in <laughs> yeah, case, in case you can't remember promote, yeah. no, i i fully encourage it if you're listening you. out there and you have a podcast or a blog or something that's music related that you want to promote please just go for it i'm, I'm happy any sort of interaction on uh, the facebook page anything that will start a discussion you've got something music related that uh, some creative endeavor that you're doing please post it there always happy to have that happen all right so i don't think at this stage we've actually said that you know, i mean we've said that we're speaking about gillian welsh but i don't think that we've actually sort of mentioned that we are going to be speaking about the harrow and the harvest now i guess you the listeners out there would know that because hell you've downloaded the podcast and it's there in the name but we formally should need to introduce that verbally in the show so yes we will be speaking about the harrow and the harvest the gillian welsh and david rawlings oh, i don't know what you call it we don't say magnum opus i don't even know really what that means but but they're uh absolutely magnificent album of 2011 
so what we're going to do is first, well, we're going to go to uh, Eric Reanimator's album I love segment. If uh, you are tuning in for the first time, Eric Reanimator is a regular participant in uh, the Love That Album show. He even has, like, I guess, a Love That Album franchise, if you will, where he speaks about <laughs> compilation albums. See, that's that's a mark of success of this show. We even have a franchise, a spin-off. But uh, he also contributes segments onto uh, the Love That Album main program, where he basically does in 10 minutes what will take us an hour and a half to do he speaks about an album he loves and this time around he's covering an album by the group Marillion called Brave and I thought well it's a it's a bit of a long shot of a connection between Marillion and Gillian Welsh but I guess the, the link is that it covers fairly dark lyrical territory and it, it, it rhymes as well I suppose uh, Marillion and Gillian oh, yeah <laughs> Wow, that's that's thinking as I hadn't even it's hadn't tenuous, occurred. but yeah, <laughs> it is a bit tenuous. I suspect that wasn't in Eric's mind. At the time, no, but, no, no. But then again, maybe it was. I don't know. Yeah. I, I think though he was going for the dark subject matter. So right, uh, yeah. That, well, we'll we'll go with that. But I think Marillion <laughs> and Gillian is not a bad one. Not a bad one at all. So okay. So what we'll do is we're going to go to uh, Eric's album I love segment. And then after that, we'll be back to discuss The Harrow and the Harvest by Gillian Welsh and David Rawlings, although we'll probably argue the case. And in fact, it should just be said Gillian Welsh. Why? We'll explain in a few minutes. Anyway, you're listening to Love That Album with me. I'm Morris in Melbourne and with Tom. He's there in Oxford. We'll be back with you shortly. Take it away, Eric, the orchestra leader. I want two. I want two, three, four. Now it's time for an album I love with Eric Reanimator. I love ED. I one, two, three. Eric the Reanimator. Derek Reanimator here, back for the month of February 2016. This time around, we're doing something a little more low-key, a little darker. We're going to be talking about the 1994 album by the UK band Marillion, simply entitled Brave. Brave is a concept album based on a story that the uh, lead singer Steve Hogarth read about a woman that was found wandering on the Severn Bridge and it's his imagination or this woman had no idea who she was or where she came from and this is his idea of what that story might have been you know uh it's got a kind of epic sweeping feel and concept albums can be a dicey prospect sometimes they're good sometimes they're really cheesy but this is one that i think works well because it deals more with impressions than narrative I should also add that uh, filmmaker Richard Stanley did make a 50-minute film version of this, which I have seen and don't really recall, unfortunately. The album itself is kind of dark and moody, 
It has moments of uh, rock and energy, but for the most part, it has a feeling of dread and unknown and shadows hovering over it. So let's take a little bit of a listen. So I did pick up this album when it came out. I think I'd heard about it or read about it somewhere. This was at a point in time when I was still completely in the thrall of epic, proficient, uh, progressive rock and metal. I was listening to a lot of uh, Dream Theater, Faked Warning, Crimson Glory, King's Axe, Galactic Cowboys, and uh, bands of that ilk. And this, just at the time, it, it spoke to me. Uh, I don't know if it was the epicness. I don't know if it was the darkness. This was at a point in time when I had yet to fully embrace the uh, the lure of punk rock or the uh, the maturity of of country and roots music. I mean, there was a little bit of that in my of that in my collection, but not a whole lot. This was part of a journey on on the way from top forty pop rock and classic rock to. Uh, being a musical explorer, you know, this was this was before I went through rockabilly and 50s rock and roll and 60s psychedelia. But um, this is a solid album. It's it's a pretty great album. Yeah, it, it seems a little cheesy at this point in time when I listen to it. Like I can hear some of the uh, 
the cleanness and some of the uh, some of the maybe uh, very proficient but not quite soulful or passionate enough uh, delivery on this album. But you know, for what this album is, that that works a lot. This was a time period when everything was in flux. This was post uh, Guns N' Roses, and you know, this was Nirvana. This was when industrial was hitting. This is uh, part of that zeitgeist of where do we fit in a society that's rapidly changing Uh, or maybe that's too much to read into it and it's just a solid moody dark album i have an image of somebody in an upscale living room with the, the the lights down or maybe just those shoulder length lights as you sit on the couch drinking a you know glass of scotch or a glass of wine and this is gently playing in the background uh while you think back about your life and where you came from uh anyway marillion brave uh it's my favorite of the records from the band that i've heard the one that followed this uh afraid of sunlight has a similar feel but it's a little more poppy and uh definitely uh not where i would start if people wanted to check them out i would definitely start with brave another record that i'm going to talk about at some point that i feel this kind of sits well with is dead can dances into the labyrinth from from the same era and uh, this also is interestingly a record that kind of sits somewhere between hard rock metal and alternative so it's you know it it fits well in all of those collections so if this sounds good check it out i'm gonna uh, leave with a little bit of the title track and we'll catch you all later
something big was coming up this is terry frost and i want to tell you about my new podcast the martian drive-in in the podcast me and a guest will look at obscure but interesting speculative fiction movies the ones that don't get enough love the obscure movies that you catch late at night you can't remember the name of but you really like them you can go to marsdrivein.blogspot.com or subscribe to the paleo cinema feed in itunes the martian drive-in podcast Watching the skies since 2012. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can get previous episodes at either lovethatalbum.podbean.com or lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or search for Love That Album in the iTunes Store. If you want to get in contact, please email Morris at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music related discussion. Thanks very much, Eric, for another Album I Love segment, and he'll be back sometime in April with another Album I Love segment for the main show and with another compilation edition episode. And if you've not caught up with any of those compilation edition episodes, shame on you. Give them some support. It's on the same feed as uh, the regular Love That Album podcast, so uh, check him out. Always fascinating stuff and always a lot of work goes into them, so uh, thank you very much, Eric. You're on episode 88 of the uh, regular Love That Album podcast. Myself on this end and Tom Quee over in Oxford on the other end. And we're here to discuss the album The Harrow and the Harvest by Gillian Welsh and Dave Rawlings. To be shorthand about this, I'm wondering whether we should define this. This gets a little bit confusing. Now, Gillian Welsh has actually gone and said that Gillian Welsh is the name of a band Mm. that just happens to have a member in it called Gillian Welsh because in every respect Dave Rawlings is an equal partner in that grouping but of course it gets equally confusing again when we realise that the two of them have another band where they two are the members called the Dave Rawlings Machine and that, but I mean in both groupings they both write the songs together they both make the arrangements I think the only slight difference is that you know, who tends to sort of do the melody because they do the harmonies but in Gillian Welsh the group Gillian Welsh the performer takes the upper or not the upper register but more the melody line with Dave yeah. doing the supporting harmonies and in Dave Rawlings Machine Dave takes the, the melody line as it were I mean we'll, we'll come back to that I've got a few thoughts you know, a few notes written down here and no doubt I'm sure that you do too Tom so I wanted to ask you as I like to do on this show what was your first experience of Gillian Welsh and or Dave Rawlings Machine if that was where you first got into them 
Yeah, yeah, it, it was through Dave actually. It was kind of I went the backwards way, as it were. I remember, um, I, I remember it distinctly actually. I remember it vividly. I remember uh, reading Mojo magazine, which I don't yes. know if they get in Australia. Uh, we, but, we, get, um, we get the imports, yeah, absolutely. Oh, excellent. Yeah, um, it's a fantastic music magazine. Uh, I, I read it regularly. You know, lots and lots of long form reviews and uh, interviews and stuff like that. And I was going for their review section, and often on Mojo they have kind of like their A to Z of the new releases, but they have kind of a little box on the right hand side of the page, which is kind of genre specific. And that changes month by month. So they might have like hip hop or funk or soul alongside the main reviews. And I remember they had the Americana box and they had the cover of Dave Rawlings Machine's first album, A Friend of a Friend. Yes. Which I think is an absolutely terrific piece of work. Like I absolutely adore that album. Maybe as much as Harren, maybe I like Harren Harvest more because I think Harren Harvest works more thematically as a complete thing. And I think Friend of a Friend is a little bit more, not scattershot, but it's a little, not, and again, not uneven. It's kind of hard to put into words, but it's just not as complete as Harren Harvest because it is a first effort you get the sense that this is Dave's spreading of the wings and you know there's a long cover in here that mixes a Conor Obo song the Neil Young song there's kind of a, a Grateful Dead cover as well I think Monkey and the Engineer there's you know kind of of those drugs and he obviously does the Ryan Adams song so there's kind of some original some stuff but anyway. well, actually, he, do, he doesn't do so much a Ryan Adams song because he wrote that song for yeah. Ryan yeah. Adams to begin with but yes I, I, I get your point yeah yeah yeah, yeah, and um, I, I just remember the, the review was glowing, and it was a brief, it was like a paragraph, and it just said, you know, it was just, I can't remember what it said, but it was framed about the album, and um, picked up the album, and I was just blown away, especially by the song, uh, if you remember the song Sweet Tooth, yes. I just couldn't enough of that track, I just what? thought it was gorgeous, and in that track as well, you, um, you hear Gillian quite a lot in it, so I was listening to the album, and I loved it, and I just I just wanted to hear more of Dave Rawlings, really, I did some research on Dave Rawlings, and found out that he worked with someone called Gillian Welsh, who I think I'd seen her name in kind of, you know, best of folklore and stuff like that but I wasn't really you know I didn't really recognise who she was to be honest and I kind of explored a little bit of her music I think I listened to Hell Among the Yearlings and I was a little bit nonplussed with it and you know I, I didn't, wasn't really gripped at all and this was about 2010 so that was just when I was going to university and then I remember the next year I was reading Mojo and Harren the Harvester came out and the review was raving about it it was just, just talking about how how brilliant it was and it, they were talking about Dave Rawlings so I was like oh my god and they were like oh he's the co-writer like you say he's the, he's the you know the co-joint soul of this essence of this enterprise so I picked up Harren the Harvest and um, yeah, I was blown away. And fr- from then on, I was just a stone-clad Gillian fan. And obviously, um, just recently, Nashville Obsolete came out by Dave Rawlings, yes. his long await follow-up. And uh, after listening to Harren the Harvest, I went back and I enjoyed Soul Journey the most uh, of all the albums that I listen to. But I've got to say, none of her albums have impressed me the way Harrow and Harvest have. They've not gripped me. I think Soul Journey has some great stuff. I really like My Morphine off uh, Hell Among the Yearlings as well. But yeah, it was through that. It was through Dave Rawlings that I came into it. And I think that, I, you know, when I'm listening to Harrow and the Harvest, I have to say, if I'm listening to anything, I'm listening to Dave's guitar playing. That's not to play down anything of Gillian singing or a melody or a turn of phrase. I mean, the lyrics to this album are absolutely immaculate. But I'm obsessed with the way Dave Rawlings could play guitar. I've, I've never experienced anything like it. He's like, it's like he's constantly soloing. He's constantly finding little gaps in the music, little right. themes. He's constantly coming out of the shadows, playing these absolutely just beautiful, beautiful fills. He has such tasteful guitar playing. Every note works. Every note is going somewhere and kind of contributing. There's never anything flashy. There's never anything flourishing. But the guy's a serious, serious player. Like, like the guy's unbelievable. At times, it reminds me a little bit of Mark Knopfler, how he would play over his own play and kind of like to kind of bring out the kind of essence of the chords but yeah it was it was through Dave and Dave is how I kind of listened to Gillian if that makes sense yeah yeah no absolutely absolutely look I was okay so, but as for my own introduction to Gillian Welsh it was more through actually Gillian as songwriter 
rather than as performer. So back in 1995, Emmylou Harris had gained a huge resurgence in popularity and a creative revival with an album produced by uh, Daniel Lanois called Wrecking Ball. Uh, just as an aside, now Lanois seemed to have, for a time, he was putting his creative mark on a number of country-related artists like Emmylou Harris and Willie Nelson and you know, Bob Dylan. The album Wrecking Ball, it certainly created a lot of interest amongst rock fans. I don't know what the country purists sort of you know, made of it, but I imagine that you know it was more like a thing, you know, the 90s, the No Depression and Alt Country movement were really embracing mm. it, as well as the rock fans. So what happened on that album was she took songs from the likes of Lucinda Williams, Steve Earle, Neil Young and Gillian Welsh. And with the assembled band, just did something absolutely incredibly magic with these songs. I mean, it was obviously, you know, having uh, country music royalty like Hemi Lou Harris was uh, certainly going to be something that, you know, a songwriter like Gillian Welsh would absolutely have treasured. The fact that she was going and doing something completely different. I don't think that before Wrecking Ball, there's, there's nothing that sounds on an Emmy Lou Harris album anyway. That's, there's nothing that sounds quite like this. The next album, Red Dirt Girl, was you know, very similar from a sonic sort of perspective and, a, and an arrangement perspective, although Daniel Lenoir's, uh, I think, co-producer or engineer, whose name is eluding me at the moment, went and produced that one. And then after that, she sort of went back to the more country, more you know, straight-out country style, yeah. folky sort of style. But that, there's something that's absolutely amazing for me and a lot of people about that album. So it really was a revelation. And the Gillian Welsh song on that album was Orphan Girl. first appeared on the revival album the emmylou version it, it's it's really a thing of beauty and the musical arrangement is it, it's very simple in its presentation it is however a studio band arrangement and it's not as sparse as the gillian welsh original and that's not an indictment of either i love them both and i prefer neither but what it does do is show what the approach that you know many people have gone and said about you know like when you when you strip back a song and you know a lot of people go and say right well you know a great song is a great song so if you take a band arrangement and you take it acoustically the essence of that song will still shine through and mm -hmm. essentially what had happened here was they went the other way you know they took a simple sparse song and make a band arrangement out of it but having said that i mean it's not like this is a large intricate arrangement it's it's still pretty sparse going <laughs> and, and Daniel Lenoir and Emmylou Harris's arrangement of the song still hits at the melancholy of this song. And I was just absolutely intrigued. I mean, look, I was intrigued with every song on this album, but when I found out that, you know, Gillian Welsh has these other albums, I thought, right, I want to explore this. Mm. And there's a there's a, a radio program in, in Melbourne on our station, 3 R, where, you know, the host was absolutely crazy about it. So, you know, getting to hear it was... You know, no hardship. He was, he was, uh, he was playing it, and you know, so I think about the uh, time when uh, Time the Revelator came out. I thought, oh wow, you know, this is absolutely amazing. This is, you know, just and, and really, I, I heard what you said before that Soul Journey was you know, probably the album that 
you enjoyed the most. I, I'm, I'm mm. wanting to know, have you really given Time the Revelator a good solid listening? I maybe not. Is that the one with my first lover on? Uh, yes, it is. And yep. Clay of Red Halo. Yeah, I, Red, I, Red I recall Halo, it. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I recall. I recall listening to it, and and but. I, I don't know. It's just nothing is grabbing me like Harrow in the Heart. Like if I was to put the crown jewels of the Dave Rawlings Gillian Welsh relationship, it would be Harrow and then Friend of a Friend and Nashville Absolute. But I think that's just maybe I'm coming on at the tail end, and I, I think I think obviously I have the utmost respect for Gillian or Gillian, and yep. uh, I, I, I you know I will go back and I will explore. But no, that that album to me is is a little bit foggy. So yeah, I'll give it the give it the net list. Yeah, no, please. Please do, because there's uh, some of the dark subject matter that you get on the Harrow and the Harvest. The, I mean, look, really, I mean, I think she's on the record as saying that she doesn't do happy. Although, mind you, there, there is one very celebratory moment on uh, Time the Revelator, the song called I Want to Sing That Rock and Roll. I want to sing that rock and roll. I want to electrify my soul. Because everybody been making a shout so big and loud, been drowning me out. I want to sing that rock and roll. And that's probably as close as she gets, and it certainly is a, a highlight of her concert, her live shows. And I'll probably, at some stage during this show, I want to talk about the concert that I went to see her do in February here in Oh, Melbourne. yeah, I'd love, I'd love to hear oh, that as well. Oh, my goodness. That was, that's, that's a... <laughs> That's a life highlight. Never mind a, a, a live concert highlight of my life. That is a life highlight. Mm. I'll be remembering mm. that show for years. And I think, anyway, no, I'll, I'll get to that when I get to that. Let's talk for a little bit about, you've already sort of like alluded to it with talking about Dave Rawlings' guitar style of playing. Let's talk about the Gillian Welsh sound. There really is something about what they do that even before they've sung a note that you'll know, right, it's them. Because, mm. you know, there, there are other groups, you know, who are doing the, the two guitar sort of material. But yeah. it, it's not necessarily as distinctive. Whereas when you hear Gillian Welsh and Dave Rawlings, or Gillian Welsh the group, if you want to call it that, yeah. before they've even opened up their mouths to sing, you know it's them. Just It's so easy when you have two acoustic guitars to throw the tag minimal. And, like, you know, I think of bands like uh, Simon and Garfunkel and more modern, like Kings of Convenience and Milk Carton Kids. And these are bands that, that revel in the interplay of guitars. But with, with Gillian and Dave, I would never call it minimal. I would say they definitely know how to work their instruments they weave together and create such density like it's like a chinese finger trap like you know most of the songs start in the same way they start with Gillian strumming and dave picking you know and and just just some magic coming in between and the relationship between the two of them is fantastic you know the album to me it, it has its corporeal nature it feels of the body there's no percussion the only percussion you hear is on scarlet town and that percussion is dave knocking on his very instrument to give you a beat there's never a drum kit there's never a bass you, you are forgetting uh, Gillian's thigh slapping on six white horses yeah, and, that, yeah, yeah. and we'll come yes. to that when we when I talk about the concert but yeah anyway go on and, and there is a, there is a blast of harmonica on one song I believe as well I think that might be in Silver six Dagger white, Six White Horses yeah, uh, yes yes it's, it's Six White Horses yeah that kind of Dylan bus but that's what I love you know the, the, the album feels so collected and so together because it is so reliant on these two people and I was reading the interview with them before the podcast and um, Gillian was talking about how this album I think this album took such a long while to come together I, I'm not obviously Friend of a Friend came out so that can kind of be counted as a Gillian Welsh band album but the last the last Gillian album was 
was it Soul Journey? It was Soul Journey, yeah. It was eight years, eight, eight years, years. Before, between albums. But okay, so I know we're wanting to talk about the sound and all that, but since you've already mm. sort of gone and mentioned here one of the things that, you know, people have gone and interpreted, and I think they've even gone and said as much, but the name The Harrow and The Harvest refers mm. to the eight years between yeah. Soul Journey and The Harrow and The Harvest. And, you know, she had that writer's block, or the two of them had that writer's block, and they'd gone and written songs, but nothing meeting their incredibly high standards. They weren't just mm. like, oh, yeah, this sort of works. We've got to put out another album. No, they didn't want to put out another record until they had songs that they were absolutely 100% in love with mm. the material. And so, well, you know, obviously I wish there was more, as a lot of other Killian Walsh fans do, <laughs> yeah. but, but holy shit, if we're going to be waiting eight years for an album and it's like this, all right, if you have to take eight years to do it, <laughs> fine, mm. because... Because yeah, this is uh, this is an album like you say. Really, it's it's never very far away from the CD play. It's just something that really offers up something new every time. Yes, yes, entirely. And that title, I mean, it's interesting. The title, the Harrow and Harvest, emblematic of the eight years. But the title is perfect for the whole theme to the album. Really, you know, the idea that there there is an absolutism in the lifestyle that they project. Like you know, it's a Harrow and a Harvest. It's a Harrow and a Harvest. It's seasonal. There's there's no way of getting out of these things. We look at songs like the way it goes and hard times these are people who are just completely at the mercy of their environments they have no control of it and but that makes it sound like there's no struggle room and if this was a kind of country album like the emily howard stuff you were saying that she got back to after wrecking ball then if it was called harrow and harvest if there's a proper country album you'd see a harrow on the front cover or you'd see a, a field being harvested but you don't and i think the front cover of this album is incredible like for anyone who hasn't seen it it's like a sort of drawn frontispiece to like an old renaissance book or something and and you see, like, um, Gillian looking straight out into the audience and Dave the Whisperer kind of, like, you know, yes, just chiming yes. something in her ear. And on Dave's shoulder is this owl, which is obviously a very mythical, loaded with connotation sort of piece. And that's what's great about the album as well. Throughout this, there is this kind of, it's dealing, like I say, with the absolutes. You know, we're dealing with kind of, like, you know, people who are tempted, people who are led astray, people who live these lives. But also songs like Scarlet Town and, you know, certain verses, like there's definitely a verse in um, Dark Turn of Mind, where, um, sorry, the way it will be, where you don't really know what she's talking about like there's no real way to pinpoint what's going on here and that just adds to it even further like there's a mysterious sense this album like folk music can be so simple and that's its charm but I love how just obscure this album can get apart oh, look I mean I don't think it gets ever like you know Tom Waits obscure but no. you know she just uses interesting turns of phrase to convey things I mean that's probably part of the magic where you don't necessarily you know have to interpret it to the nth degree but you, you certainly do get the gist and I, I think you know within a few minutes I sort of do want to get into specific examples uh, because you know, there are still the standard sort of themes that appear on a Gillian Welsh album you know death yeah. uh, death um, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, more death uh, yeah. but, you know, hard times and, and uh, look, we'll come across some of those things you've got to mention there about the album title I look I like the fact that they decide to go something a little bit less obvious a little bit more poetic to describe mm. the title The Harrow and the Harvest because you know they could have gone for standard sort of phrases like they could have gone and called this album The Famine and the Feast or yes. they could have called it When It Rains It Pours mm. you know which are far more common phrases used every day day and it's this I like this is something a little bit more unusual and when they finally came out you know they they got that harvest and yet thematically a lot of these songs are really more about the harrow there's very limited 
points where you get a little bit of harvest, but you know we'll sort of get to that as we get to individual songs. But yeah, as I've said, you know there are themes of death and uh, alcoholism and loss of friendship yes. and religious Lots of guilt. Yes, temptation and and lust and 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 it's just just reaping the horrors of those actions. And actually, it's it's interesting because as I think you said to me uh, last month, Tom, uh, we mm. discussed for our last Love That Album podcast episode. We were speaking about Joe Jackson's album Heaven and Hell, which is another H and H. But, yes. <laughs> but also, I mean, even though there's nothing formally here about you know the seven deadly sins like that album was, a lot of those themes crop up on both albums you know themes of death themes of religious guilt mm. and you know so there's there's some interesting tie-in if you want to place it between mm. those albums so I, I, I just want to come back because i still wanted to say a couple of things about that gillian well sound in a way it's sort of because you know you've already gone and said you know that how they interweave their sound you know it is two guitars and two voices and on the surface if you were to describe it without playing the music to someone, you'd sort of say, well, it's sort of underselling them. It's you know, mm. merely saying that you know, one person on acoustic guitar and the other person on acoustic guitar or sometimes occasionally banjo or, or whatever, it's, it's sort of thing, well, that's been done before. But, you know, Gillian, the person, used to play drums in a punk band and bass in a surf oh, right. band. So really, she tends to be very percussive in her style of guitar playing. And... Dave's guitar solos have, because you've already gone and said, you know, they, they have that interweaving sort of thing. Mm. It, it, his guitar playing, it dances around what uh, Gillian Welsh, the person. Uh, yes. How are we going to keep, from here on in, we're going to be referring <laughs> to them as Gillian and Dave rather than Gillian Welsh, yeah. the band. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, his, his style of playing, it dances around what she does in a, a rhythmic guitar sort of sense. I tend to think that his style of guitar playing on some songs in particular, it's more of a rock style of guitar playing. And I think that you making the connection to Mark Knopfler is, is, is a good one. It had, hadn't actually mm. occurred to me. But his style, he thinks in some ways like a rock guitar player. Yes. I was going to sort of make more reference to it later on, but one of the highlights of the concert that I went to last month was Revelator. that like a rock guitar player it, mm. it was there was no sort of oh i sort of think that you know this works a bit more like a rock type of style and there was no doubt i think uh, we had this saying in australia blind freddie could see that and blind freddie could sort of see <laughs> that um that you know, dave was playing like a rock guitarist in uh, his uh, interpretation of uh, time the revelator on that night it was getting so intense and i just never wanted the song to end it was like mm. eight minutes of rock perfection and I, I could have been quite happily if they would have extended it out to 20 minutes sweet to cry shame sweet to cry shame sweet to cry shame gotta feed the sweet tooth ten times a day just to hear the wind blowing on a windy day Okay, so we'll talk a little bit now about uh, Dave Rawlings' machine because I know that that's a favourite of yours. Just 
Yeah. As, you, as you've already gone and said, notwithstanding the release of the Dave Rawlings Machine album, you know, Friend of a Friend in 2009, it was eight years between Tropicdillion Welsh albums. Mm. It's possibly the album that we're expecting instead of of Soul Journey, Harrow and the Harvester, because, you know, Soul Journey, it sort of has the band feel, I guess, of a Dave Rawlings Machine album, but it doesn't sort of really sound like a Gillian Welsh album. The, the Dave Rawlings Machine album, it's a, even though it's the two of them, with, you know, a couple of extra plays, it, it's a different beast with its arrangement. Completely. Featuring, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the, not just because it has uh, additional musicians, but, you know, the, okay, so superficially, there's a lead vocals that focused on Dave Rawlings and there's I guess there's less of the morbid feel even I mean, yeah even, even on a song like I Hear Them All there's still something more of a 60s folk revival feel than the dark room late at night type of feel of some of the Gillian Welsh songs like uh, Dear Someone uh, and you've really got to mention Sweet Tooth and that Sweet Tooth I'm not sure that you know a, a song like that that could have ever ended up on a Gillian Welsh album. It sounds more like the sort of thing you'd hear on a, a Peter, Paul and Mary album. And that's... Yeah. Uh, regardless of where you feel about Peter, Paul and Mary, I mean, I, I think that's certainly a positive thing. You know, it's, it's, it's got that lightness of uh, lightness of touch. And that was actually the token Dave Rawlings Machine song that they did on the night that I went to see them. They did that one thing that's and... It was, it was just, it was a real treat. It was a real treat. Tonally, if you think of Friend of a Friend, like, I, I'm struggling to think of any sadness on that album. There's certainly yearning, but, yes. you know, so, songs, even songs like um, How's About You, which is another one of my favourites of Friend of a Friend, like, you know, they, they're just, they're more like yokel, kind of like y'all, kind of, in a, in a nice way, but they have that kind of, you know, kind of country vibe to them. Right. Whereas, whereas this, I would, I would argue, if you were to say that Harren Harvest's country, which it definitely is, you, oh, it's more southern gothic like you know it's it's definitely dwelling in, in the hollowness of this existence rather than celebrating it like e- you know even the song like um, and we'll get onto this later but uh, Down Along the Dixie Line which feels quite positive but when you kind of dig into the lyrics like there's quite a, a few little good one-liners that Gillian's put in there just to unsettle you a little bit and that happens throughout this album there's just one line or two in the lyrics one little idea that doesn't and it just wrinkles the whole thing up and it's just it's a really good way of writing songs but yeah I, to go from friend of a friend to power and the harvest in the space of a year as well i mean obviously this probably been recorded much more, many times before but it, it's, a, it's a huge stylistic leap it feels like them but it feels like a huge 180 as well well which is it's sort of nice that they can give themselves a mm. different name and do something completely different yeah yeah, at the yeah. Same time, without it being you know sort of like one album's a country album and one's album like a a, a surf rock album or something like that it's, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. different and it's recognizable but it's recognizably them so on this album, it's it's an interesting thing because I've already gone and said that the Harrow and the Harvest is a sort of more creative way to you know sort of talk about things you know, like rather than saying the famine and the feast. And yet, what I also find interesting, we have a trilogy on this album of songs yes. that start off with the way, and they're taking everyday expressions which you know the way it will be the way it goes the way the whole thing ends which you mm. know almost sound I, I can't think of the word what am i trying to say they, they almost sound you know bland and banal but they really take it into different places you know and and 
you're not just getting, because you, know, you don't get from Dave and Gilly, you don't get something that's just every day, but they take these everyday expressions and in these songs, they really shape them into something, you know, a little bit unexpected. Well, maybe mm. not unexpected if you're used to the Gillian Welsh and Dave Rawlings universe. And, and once again, all these songs have something to do about death being you know, real death or the death of a relationship. I sort of wonder about the production values on the way it'll be. Not that I have any issues with how the rest of the album sounds, but it's all, you know, because it's all beautiful and crisp, but Gillian's guitar has, I don't know, some, there's some extra bass or depth or resonance. Maybe the, I, I'm wondering if they've double-tracked her guitar on this. It, mm. it just, if, especially if you're listening through the headphones, it sounds like it's got some some extra bass or something extra going there. And her voice, they, they've sort of gone and done what, like, during the Beatles period, you know, what John Lennon would do to double track his voice. Whereas in here, we're so used to hearing Gillian and Dave do harmonies that when they do their unison, it's almost sounded to me like Gillian doing a double track voice. But in fact, it's the two of them doing unison. It sort of had that John Lennon effect, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it, it, the song does have that slightly reverse delay intro as well. It just kind of comes out of nowhere. And I, 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 I think of the whole The Way trilogy, mm. I've got to say, I think The Way It Will Be is my favorite. Oh, really? I, okay. I, I, I think the Throw Me a Rope on the Rolling Tide is just, I, I, I always sing that to myself constantly. I just think, because it has that appeal. It's the Throw Me a Rope on a Rolling Tide, which is a fantastic image anyway, because like obviously it's it's getting an antiquated theme, isn't it? It's not Throw Me a Rubber Dinghy, it's not Get a Lifeboat. <laughs> Fro, throw Me a Rope on like a tempestuous ocean. There, yes. there is no hope. There, there is a sense of salvation, but it's almost, you know, it's conceded from the start, really. And then like, what did you want? What, what did you want it to be? The appeal directly to the person. And that first verse is just, I adore it really. Not only, I think the whole album has brilliant, brilliant opening lines. I think the, the way it will be, I lost you a while ago, I still don't know, I, I can't say your name about a crow flying by. Brilliant, brilliant image. And then the whole idea of her walking backwards into her own hometown. It has this almost possessed element. It has a slightly demonic, I mean, maybe it's a metaphor, but you can almost visualize it literally. And, and yeah, the production on this song is just absolutely killer. But what I was saying about earlier, how, how there's a certain there's certain elements in the songs that are obscure I have to say that most of this second verse I don't understand uh, seven years on the burning shore with Gatling guns and paint I, I mean I, I understand what a Gatling gun is but I don't really you know what I mean I don't know where this place is in the song really mm. um, which is which is quite interesting and, uh, and then you took all the glory that you just couldn't share and you know I've never been served anything to taste about the whole song makes sense but then it's kind of like this little schism in the middle Johnson about the farm Put a needle in her arm That's the way that it goes That's the way And her brother laid her down In the cold Kentucky ground That's the way that it goes That's the way That's the way that it goes Yeah, 
buying little baby clothes That's the way that it is Though there was a time when she and I the way it goes to me is it's too old Gillian it, it's upbeat and it's fun and you know everyone buying little baby clothes and I like the kind of world she's building and I don't know if the, you know and it just we have reference to LA here as well which I, this album to me has always existed in the 1920s uh, but like, like, see, okay see look, uh, that's the point I mean that's what I mm. think makes Gillian and Dave so um, so beloved well maybe not completely what makes it so beloved yeah. to a modern audience but the fact is there's they're not rooted in old-timey music i mean no. they, they the music that that old-timey carter family style is obviously something that they sit in reverence of but without it taking over what they yeah. do and the fact that they are singing about very contemporary things and the way it goes i think is it's probably i'm stuck to say what a favorite song is but this yeah. would be fairly close to it the way it goes because it's okay for, for, for a couple of reasons sort of stylistically i love mm. that type of song and i've probably mentioned this about richard thompson before in the past i love the mechanism in a song where a songwriter tells a different story in every verse and then yes everything becomes linked through mm-hmm. the chorus and in in this song this is actually i mean because i'm i'm really at odds to hear you say that you think that is a little bit of fun because really this is them at their most macabre mm. we, we've gone and taken this you know expression the way it goes and it's just like an everyday sort of expression we we shrug our shoulders and say meaningless things like you know oh, well you know, how are you today or oh well i guess that's the way it goes and yeah. because like death it's something that's you know become so ubiquitous in our lives and this song it almost gets to be a, oh well someone so has gone and died so the, the first verse becky johnson bought the farm put a needle in her um that's the way it goes well that's the way I mean, yeah, yeah yeah this is tragic this this, um, this <laughs> it's more the delivery i think I, I understand lyrically that it's very depressing but it's just that upbeat kind of jig that the, the, is nice it leaves a bad taste in the mouth because they're delivering and I especially love you talk about the ubiquity of death I love when you lay me down to rest leave a pistol in my vest yes. so the idea that even in death there is no salvation and one must have a weapon to arm themselves is fantastic right right but every character has faced some sort of hard mm. time and I love the fact that you know in, in the first one it's told like through the third through the third person it's someone it's remote uh, there was a time when she and I were friends Yes. Uh, yeah. the, the next one, yeah, Miranda ran away, took a cat and left LA. And you know, really, when she says she was busted, busted, broken, flat, and had to sell that pussy cat, we're not talking about a literal pussy cat. You know, that, that's the thing. Yeah, I, I made that poor, note as well. Poor, yeah. poor Miranda had to. She had to go into prostitution. And and then they sort of go in a slightly different way. She's the brightest. See, the brightest ones of all in early in October fall. That's the way things go. That's the way with the dark ones go to bed with good whiskey in their head. So they're taking a step back. It's not a direct comment on anyone in particular, but it's sort of like making an observation. Wow, times have really gotten hard for all of us as friends. You know, they, when they say, I, I recall a time when he and I were friends, when she and I were friends, when all of us were friends. This is probably, you know, people who, who've grown up, they all went to school together, they were all in the playground together. Someone's taken their life from drugs, someone's had hard times fall on them, the, the farm's been possessed by the bank. Um, yeah, and uh, uh, Billy, Billy 
Joe's back in the tank. You tell Russo, I'll tell Frank. Yes, so exactly. The, the idea of all the companions know this. And then, and then as, it, and as you're saying, like the, the, the progression is just, I mean, the lyrics yeah, to this song are absolutely tremendous, like fantastic. They tell the story in such a laconic, brilliant way. And then the final one, do, do you miss my gentle touch? Did I hurt you very much? You know, yes. Two questions. And then that's the way it goes. There is nothing changing. I, I mean, I don't know if you've, uh, you or any listeners are aware of Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse Five, but that's a novel very famous for most paragraphs end with, and this is like a 300 page novel. Most of the paragraphs, it's like a World War II anti war novel. Mm-hmm. Most paragraphs end with, so it goes. So it goes, so it goes. That just that oh, keeps com- going through the novel constantly. I mean, so it goes, probably said like three, four hundred times in the novel. And always, I always think of that when I listen to this song, the way it goes. And it's just all about, you know, you can't escape the rigor of, of, of progression, really. You know, you, you are victim to it. And this is something that pops up throughout the album. But yeah, the way it goes is, um, and the baby clothes as well. Just that little, who, who, who can not see baby clothes and, and feel a bit, you know, ah, like who, who doesn't crumble before that? And, and all of these people that we're hearing about once wore baby clothes and that makes it all the worse. Mm. Join Morris, Tim and Bernie every month as they discuss music-related movies. iTunes, Facebook or download direct from seehere.podbean.com The See Here Podcast. It's a blast. Far out. We've already sort of spoken a bit about Dave's guitar playing, and, and really, I think this song, in a way, is a prime example of what he's doing here with that dancing sort of style. He's he's you know doing these little fills, which in other people's hands would sound way, way, way too busy, but I think he's still in the thrall of the melody and his his guitar playing. It's sort of like I don't know, maybe like a, a form of gospel singing, if you will. It, it, it's like a it's like a third voice. The two of them are doing their harmony voices, and the guitar is you know less like a, a lead. It's not like a lead guitar line. It's certainly not like a rhythmic guitar line. It's more like a, a third I don't know scat line, if you will, if that makes any sense. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, and he does the same thing on like a, I want to hear that rock and roll from uh, from Time the Revelator, and he does it on a whole bunch of songs here. Yeah. It's it's really so very very distinctive. Not just on this song, but you know, just all over the album. I mean, according to you know what I read about, it, he plays like a 1935 Epiphone Olympia guitar for you uh, mm-hmm. guitar geeks out there. And what I like about his sound, and probably sort of what distinguishes him as an acoustic player, is he's, he's sounds like he's a plectrum player. And as I'm so used to sort of like hearing like within this genre, hearing a uh, finger picking playing in uh, in country music, and his his plectrum playing of these lines, you know, and it's not merely you know rhythmic strumming, it makes his playing incredibly distinctive, very very percussive. 
He's that rare breed of player that, you know, you hear him and you know it's him without even seeing him on the, the yes. CD cover. Yes, yeah, yeah. It, sorry, I, it's just funny, funny you mentioned that just about sure. this guitar. Um, there's a fantastic uh, YouTube video that came out around the release of Nashville Obsolete. I'm not sure oh, yeah. if I sent it to you, actually. I might have sent it to you. But um, it's it's sort of Guitar World or one of those big guitar publications. It's basically a 10-minute video. It's a sure. brief interview with Dave, and he has the guitar that he plays on this album. And he talks about how he found the guitar. And it was him and Gillian. And I watched this video quite a while ago. But basically, if I remember correctly, it was him and Gillian going through some sort of factory or something. And they found the guitar on top of a table. But it was just the bottom. Body, it wasn't strung and it was just covered in dust and apparently he was just taken by it and they sort of sanded it down cleaned it up strung it up and he loved the sound and and the the, the sound of the lead playing on this because you know as a, as a player myself like it's quite difficult to mic up an acoustic guitar and not just try and emulate an electric guitar you know not in the sense that you're putting effects on it but the sense that when you kind of put a mic towards those strings it can just make it sound a little bit clipped and a little bit sharp mm. but the warmth and and the, just the the attack this guy has in his guitar playing and yeah the way it goes throughout it I think I think my my, hot, my personal highlight in terms of his guitar playing on this album is probably down on the Dixie Line. We're down in Dixie, oh do they miss me down along the Dixie Line? Banjos are strumming. I think that's one of the most tasteful guitars I've ever heard. It's so well measured against Gillian's very sparse strumming, but I'm sure we'll get onto that. But yeah, uh, Dave is all over this album. And the way it goes, you know, it's one of those rare songs where the, the lyrics in quality are matched by the solo, which you can rarely, I mean, most guitar, most songs, you're like, oh, the song's brilliant. The solo's a bit showy, I feel, maybe it's not necessary, but I just I just think Dave just rises to the challenge on every track here. Well, there's no note out of place. Everything he no. does, you think, no, that's, it would be a lesser song if you weren't doing what you were doing. And although, mind you, having said that, if he wasn't doing what he was doing, he'd probably be doing something equally brilliant. He'd probably, oh, I've yes. got another idea. Um, yeah. I, I just, the two of them just have the highest, I hate to use it, land expression like quality control but really everything that's in their heads really they are two halves of the one person yeah and i know that sounds very cliche but the two of them are in each other's heads and it's not like what would oh what's the best possible solo that we i can come up with is what is right for the song mm-hmm. uh and really anything that you do dave is is right for the song <laughs> and so while we've sort of been you know discussing the two of them as two halves of the one person or as a team if, you, if you're going to discuss them as a duo you've probably make mention as we will now uh, about you know other any other number of country duos you know contemporary or otherwise and so you know they've been other working duos like uh, the handsome family the civil wars oh yeah the civil uh, wars yeah why, uh, which i don't know look I, I listened to a little bit at first and i sort of thought they were okay but i, I became bored with them a oh bit. yeah they're okay yeah, yeah they're, but, nothing, um, they're nothing okay the handsome family are fantastic a, a world away from what gillian and dave do they do something completely different but mm. i don't know if you've heard them at all you really I haven't need to, you really yeah, yeah. Need, you really need to search out the handsome family in the last days of wonder when spirits Still flow where we sat holding hands in half dark in rooms. Oh, yeah. You as a lyrics, and I tell you what, you as a Tom Waits fan. Oh, 
will dig the handsome family. It's, I, I imagine that Tom Waits sits there and is probably absolutely digging on them. It, it doesn't sound quite like them, but there's something in about their way of storytelling that mm-hmm. I think would appeal to him and certainly will appeal to you. So, uh, yeah, check out, check out the handsome family. They're fantastic. Uh, uh, there's a Canadian group that I was introduced to by um, a fellow called Scott Clickers, hosts the Excellent Married with Clickers podcast. Uh, there's a group called White Horse, husband and okay. wife team. And we've, we've uh, covered an, one of their albums on previous Love That Album podcast. So uh, check that out. Uh, and locally, Casey Chambers and Shane Nicholson. Now, I'm not a great fan of Casey Chambers as her voice, but when she's working with Shane Nicholson, I think the two of them have something going you know, really, really strong. And all of them, they have a very different approach to their craft, but there has to be something said for the vocal approach of a couple. So, you know, once again, with the handsome family, which is uh, Brett and Rennie Sparks, they actually don't do too much harmony vocalising. It's more about, you know, Brett's voice, which has got this really rich baritone, and he, you know, he sings songs. I'm not even going to spoil the subject matter for it. It's more the subject matter that I think you'd listen to and say, yeah, I can see where that would end up in a Tom Waits song. Because his voice is a million miles from what Tom Waits does, but I think once again, Tom would dig it, and the subject matter would be right up Tom Waits' alley. Yeah. Anyway, so un- unlike those other duos, you know, Gillian Welsh as a duo are very happy to scale everything back for the most point to just two guitars, because the other duos they use rock band instrumentation. Uh, so you know, Gillian and Dave are just you know keen to sort of bring everything back to two guitars, two voice. They don't, but they don't sound like two people. They do sound like you know, one. They've refined their sound mm. until they got that melded sound. It, it's that's it's stripped back to basics, but it, it's look and it's looking back to what was, and yet it still doesn't sound all too dated. You were mentioning before you found it curious that they were doing something that sounded a little bit contemporary with their lyrics, but I, once again, mm. I think there are other lyrical instances where they bring it up to a contemporary sound, and I think that's absolutely a, you know, an essential criterion of what they do. You know, because if it, it would sort of sound a little bit sort of unauthentic if they were sort of singing everything about well you know yeah what what's, what's an ipad <laughs> yeah yeah exactly exactly yeah, they they don't try to sound you know too contemporary they don't but they don't yeah. hold enthrall to what had happened a hundred years ago because that's not who they are they're born in the you know late 20th century and they're singing about things that could have worked at either time but with genuine nods to what is going on in the world around them rather than what's been done a hundred years ago and they did you know quite a few interviews on radio and tv and they did an interview on the on a triple r radio show called twang and they said that in fact what their influence was you know less so the married couples but the brother couples and they mentioned specifically like the leuven brothers and the monroe brothers which really for them they said you know it's 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 family rather than you know, the the learned sort of sound of the married couples that is more the natural sound of uh, the brothers that were an influence for them. And even really when you sort of think about it, because on, on some more sitting in the dark, really moody sort of touch, you, it really brings for me a, a sound of the Everly brothers in what they do. So I sort of found that, yeah, that makes complete sense in terms of what they say. Is, is there anyone else who you can think of sort of um, that, they sound like in terms of couples either married or brother or any other type of couples. 
Um, not especially. No, I no, nothing. Nothing springs to mind. I, I, what what captivates me really is the sense that I I was always interested because obviously they are a couple uh, in in real life romantically as well as well as musically. Mm. But I was always curious about that, and like I, it got confirmed to me during the uh, Nashville obsolete press and you know it was pretty blatantly mentioned in articles but up until that point i was always it felt like a bit of a jack white meg white thing it felt like what okay. are they like are, you know obviously they're incredibly in tune with each other musically and um i don't know if you've seen um their performance on the mb mpr tiny desk yes i did yes um, yes i have watched uh, and and like anyone that watches that you can tell the way jillian looks at dave she's completely in love with him Yes. Like, like, there's just you, you. It's unmistakable, really. Like, like, it, it's just such a look of just she's lost in him. It, it, it's beautiful. It's really nice to look at. Mm. Uh, it, uh, that sounds quite voyeuristic, but I mean that in a kind of genuine, like, it makes the music better kind of way. Like, uh, to inevitably bring you back to Tom Waits, there was a recently unearthed uh, interview on Irish TV in the early '80s where we finally see Kathleen Brennan, uh, Tom Waits, oh, Tom Waits' right. views. I have to send it to you, but you can tell that Kathleen and Tom are completely in love. Like, like it's clear, and and that helps, you know, with that as well. But in terms of comparable uh, couples, I can't, I can't think of any off the top of my head. No. Mm. Okay, so let's take the conversation down the uh, the character road because, mm. you know, as well as doing stories, and sometimes they they tell stories and let you, the listener, fill in the blanks based on how they describe their characters and what they can do within one phrase tells you everything that you need to know, and. I think, and apart from like a handful of songs like uh, Caleb Meyer, where we, we where we get a story from start to end, most of their songs tend to be about we're going to give you a few lines here, we're going to give you a bit yeah. of a character study here, and you can fill in the blanks. So you know, it happens here on this album, and probably what would be like the the, the central song on the album in that regard would be uh, the song Tennessee. I kissed you because I've never been. I learned to see hosannas on my knees But they threw me out of Sunday school When I was nine And the sisters said I did just as I pleased I even so It's only what I want that makes me weep I had no desire to be a child of sin But then you went and pressed your whiskers to my cheek mm. And the song conveys the character so well but you know, leaves your imagination to fill in the details. Uh, and it, it's a song that you really need to listen late at night, in the dark, with a big shot of Glenn Fittich or Jack Daniels or whatever your choice of whiskey well, is. Well, whiskey, yeah, as they yeah, say. Yeah. Oh, this is this is not a beer drinking song. This is a this is a, no. whis a whiskey drinking song. Mm -hmm. uh, and Rawlings guitar just waltzes around that strummed accompaniment of, of, of Gillian Welsh. Once again, he's not playing a defined melody. It's just the sort of accompaniment that sounds like he's playing 
wherever his imagination is taking him at the time. It's not improvisation in a solo context, but more like the sort of embellishment you'd get, as I've already said, in a vocal context on a, on a gospel song. It won't be caged or defined, and, and he adds movement without ever sounding overly busy. Yeah, and there's just that constant, this is an obsession um, for, for Gillian throughout this album, the idea of the woman who is fallible to sin and sees nothing wrong in sinning, right. but, who, but who also acknowledges the place of faith within the world. Um, so, so, you know, throughout this song, I, I, think, I think the opening line to this song is one of my favourite opening lines. I kissed you because I've never been an angel. That's I learned it. to say Hosanna on my knees. Um, and, and we learn, like you're saying, there, there are quite a lot of actual characterization here. We learn that she went to Sunday school and she was kicked out when she was nine. Um, we we learn that she, she drinks rye, she's gambling, you know, all these sort of things. But ultimately, this person who accepts heaven when she dies and, and transgressions, she doesn't care. She is an, she absorbs these contradictions and creates uh, beautiful music in the meantime. And, it, and, it, and it, it, it's absolutely terrific. And, you know, I, all, even the cliche so she says, um, "Why can't I go back home to apple pie?" Yes. Like in, in in the mouth of Johnny Cash or you know um, Lucinda Williams, that would be a lame line. But in the context of this song, it just works so so well. And I love the fact that the chorus um, goes from beefsteak to whiskey to heaven. Like there's always this holy trinity for this woman in herself. <laughs> That's you know, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's really nice. So there isn't the you know holy father and all that kind of thing. There are these kind of free southern staples that I mean one of my one of my all time favorite bands, uh, the Drive By Truckers. This is what they're obsessed with as well. The contradiction of the southern thing. They have a brilliant song called the Southern Thing, which is all about that. And, it, and you know, I'm I'm a, a white person from Birmingham. Like I'm not attesting to be in tune with what the deep south is and trying to understand it but it fascinates me and i think yeah tennessee is it's, it's a masterpiece and i think you are right to say that it is kind of the center of the album for sure last show when we were discussing yeah. uh, joe jackson's heaven and hell and we sort of you know we're speaking about the, the song angel and there's a whole thing about you know the joe jackson character he, he's struggling with the idea of sin and we don't know whether he's a, a married man who's who's cheating on his wife or we don't know whether he's a priest who's struggling with the idea of lust and he's got the uh, Suzanne Vega devil on one shoulder and I think the Joy Askew um, angel on the other shoulder you know, one saying you know oh, really you know you want to you want to have your chain yanked and the other one saying singing something in uh, in Latin uh, saying be, be a good boy but essentially he's struggling with the idea of lust do I or don't I and when Gillian and Dave singing this song, they're not struggling at all with lust. In fact, you know, why should... It, it, I think they're basically saying, lust is someone else's problem. It's not not my problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and really, that, that first line that you quoted of the song, you get the whole idea of her character. Yeah. I kissed you because I've never been an angel. You mm. know exactly... You've got the whole idea of the character right from the opening line. It's, yeah. I, I just sort of I don't know their method of working but I'm sure that they're not they don't just sort of like pull lyrics out of the air and think oh this would be a good line oh yeah that works I imagine that they're sort of sitting around and they well they spent eight years putting this album together so I imagine that like, she probably sort of thought a month just to get that one perfect line out they might have come up with a bare bones no that's quite not what, I, what I'm I, after I, I, have, I have to say the, the whole opening stanza of Tennessee is just 
unbelievably good when he's talking about uh, the sisters said I did as I pleased even so I try to be a good girl it's only what I want that makes me weak and and then and then I love I had no desire to be a child of sin but then you went and pressed your whiskers to my cheek oh my god you, you, uh, you, no. you picture you have that picture in your mm. mind it's so cinematic I mean I, I've used that word to describe a lot of the songwriters that we discuss on the show but really what I like about this is, is not big school cinema we're not, we're not talking like a 70 mil age <laughs> epic sort of thing this, no. this is a some little cult movie that, you can you can see the lighting it's a close-up shot of this guy's skin you're not quite seeing the whole face and you just know that they're going to be getting up to something and and it's going to be fine it's going to be all right you know there's no regrets here in this yeah, of, of of all the little ways I found to hurt myself, you might be my favourite one of all. Well, actually, uh, see, that's that's the one point in this song where you sort of wonder that on the, on the one hand she's you know she has no regrets, but on the other hand you sort of wonder whether she's sort of hurting herself. Like you, of all the ways I found to hurt myself, you sort of wonder: is this guy a cad? Is this you know this is yes. this is not this is not the love of her life. This guy is. He, he's a bastard, and he might be like one in a series of relationships. You know, she doesn't want the guy who's going to be loyal to her, who's going to be faithful to her, who's going to be the father of her children. This no, guy, no, it, no. this is a relationship that she lust is not a sin to her, but on the other hand, she knows that none of these guys is completely good for her. So it's not about sin, but it's about what feels right for her. But also knowing that it's not completely right in the conventional sense. So this song is a combination of Harrow and Harvest. Harrow because he's not going to be right for her and Harvest because he is right for her, if and that, yeah, that totally. And and similar to the uh, the mention of the, the you know selling the cat in L.A. Like there's another like nice little sexual innuendo that, that's quite classy, even though it's a little risque. Talking about, I mean, this this guy that tempts her with his whiskers, uh, we learn is a musician. You know, um, you were there strumming on your gay guitar, and yes, you're trying yes. to tell me something with your thumb, which is you know. <laughs> <I> mean, you, <laughs> it's quite obvious what he was trying to say like you know it's uh, it was not wrapped in any mystery there but i just love that line as well because instantly you're talking about the close with the whiskers you are drawn to this man playing guitar but you're kind of you're seeing it through this person's eyes and she's not even listening to the music she's just seeing what he can do with his hands and that's captivating her and yeah i think tennessee i think i think a great uh, you know speaking of music altogether really i think a great sign of a great album at least for me if i uh, the reason i know it, i love an album is if i can keep listening to it and new songs become my favorite songs it's not like i have a set favorite like you know some songs will become more of my favorites in one month some of the others and tennessee was not something i skipped early and i always enjoyed it but it, it's definitely risen up as one of my all-time favorites on the album just for the, the storytelling i think i think the storytelling is second to none in this track Yep, sure. And I love the fact that you know, the music for this, it, I mean, I'm wondering whether the lyric could have worked any better on a different melody. I mean, I know, you know, ultimately they'll deliver however they want to deliver and it'll be brilliant. This is really late night stuff, not just because of the lyric, but because this is one of the slow songs, one of the slowest songs yeah. that they've done. And it, it just has that lazy 
sort of feel that late night. This song is not rushing. It's not in a hurry to be anywhere. It's it's six and a half minutes, and you get the feeling like if they'd stretched it out to ten with another verse, you wouldn't be so like looking at your watch and thinking, hurry up, you know, no. just get to the point. No, no, no. You're you're really going along with them for the ride on this because you're you're in thrall of the story that she's telling, and it. But she's you know not sort of like spelling it out, not giving you on a silver spoon or a silver platter but you're, you're going along with this and think right she's describing this mood and you fill in the blanks and you know, just that melody that slowness that not rushing to be anywhere it just so completely works and like dear someone from time the revelator does the same sort of thing it's not yes. in a hurry to go anywhere and and that chorus as well beefsteak when i'm working it's very slow isn't it? it's very measured mm. and it comes back and back and back it's a it's a gorgeous gorgeous refrain and when and the sweet heaven when i die when she delivers that line it, it it feels holy it feels rapturous it feels like something from a gospel even though she's telling you about all these transgressions that she's gone through um you know just, just again. I mean, we'll, I'm, I'm going to end up quoting the entire song here, but there's so many good lines. Um, each, you know, we get the idea that we know that this is a, a Sunday school girl, and that she's being tempted by this musician guy. And she says, "Your affront to my virtue was a touch too much, but you left a little twinkle in my eye." Mm. It, it, just the sense of this man, even without even interacting with her, has kind of, you know, has done something to her essence. You know, there's, there's. there's I would argue that in terms of straight narrative, the, there are better songs on this album in terms of their strength. I think Hard Times is arguably the song that has the story story. Like that, that if you were sort right. of a screenwriter, that has beginning, middle and end. You know, that has act one and inciting instant and resolution. But in terms of just the essence of a tale that sticks with you, you know, some of my favourite um, short story writers, I'm thinking of people like Grace Palin, Alice Monroe. These are people that aren't really concerned with the thriller, the, the gripping, you know, the, the twist and the end. They're more concerned about just building a world that is going to stick in your brain and I think Tennessee does that uh, to an infinite degree so I, I guess it's the song equivalent of a slice of life really like a, a slice yes. of life type film like something David Putnam would have put out in the 80s or something it, exactly exactly or I guess uh, if we're going to go for me like Mike Lee or something you know, well so, actually but, well sorry probably Mike Lee I mean, David Putnam's films were you know more happy and wistful sort of thing right but you right, know, yeah. Mike Lee yeah, a, a lot more dark so I, I, I guess right. so yeah a, a yeah. much much better comparison also we're going to i said at the start of this that death and like you know death of a relationship but also literal death is uh, a big theme on well on all gillian's albums on this album i I think probably the most straightforward one in that sense is uh the song scarlet town but i went down to scarlet town ain't never been there before where you stepped on a feather bed i slept Town is their take, really, to me, it's the most appellation the songs of the songs on this album. And I like the fact that this song, so it even mentions if you don't get the point, but if you are sort of familiar with Appalachian murder ballads, and this is where we're sort of also getting into Nick Cave territory, they mention uh, very deliberately, like Polly uh, on the mountainside, you, you, you left me to rot away like Polly on the mountainside, and there's, I think, 101 or 1,001 variations 
of a murder ballad where the ma- uh, the woman who's been done hard by is someone called Polly. And, you know, the whole thing about oh. uh, uh, the folk tradition is you take the same story and you might have variations on the lyrics and there'll be slightly different melody, but there'll be a common element. And I think Polly is one of those characters, one of those stories. It's the same story, but it's been told in a different way. Do the research. I mean, I've heard like you know, a couple of different ones, but I'm pretty sure that there are, you know, 101 others out there where the main character is, is Polly. So yeah, that's that's a nod to the history of Appalachian music, I'm sure, Vic. But what I like here is it, it's not till late in the song that you realise that the because it's sung in the first person, the protagonist is already dead. So farewell, my own true love. If you ever see me around, I'll be looking through a telescope from hell to scarlet town. Mm. She's she's dead, but she's a narrator of that song. And I, I know that she's probably, you know, Gillian and Dave are not the first people to write a song from the perspective of a dead person. But I love the fact that, you know, it's not from verse one. I love the fact that it comes in later. And it's, yeah, it's really it starts with Buddy as well. The, the first word is Buddy, yes. which kind of gives it this almost kind of jovial sense. And then, it, yeah, it kind of pulls back. I actually heard it as Holly on a mountainside. I, it is Polly. I know it that. Polly. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I didn't realize that. Now, um, I just I just want to double check something with you because I, I, I've got my lyrics from online and stuff like that. And I obviously, it's look at that deep well, look at that dark grave. Yes. But I'm not sure if the later verses is look at that deep well, look at that dark ray. Or if no, it's no, still- dark, dark grave. Do- well, oh, it's Doug, well, sorry. Well, yeah. look at that deep well, look at that Doug grave, ringing Doug that grave. I am there in Scarlet yeah. Town today. I mean, basically, when you get to the chorus, that's when you sort of think, oh my God, she's dead. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's how she's there in Scarlet Town. She's not. She's not a resident. She's been there to be buried. Uh, no, and, and unlike a lot of the songs, which just kick in, like the next song, Dark Turn of Mind, which literally just starts. Scarlet Town. There's like two seconds of silence, and then the start just kicks up. You know, which is quite interesting. It gives you that sense of the solemnness of being underground for a certain sense. And then it just sort of starts, and there's a great ebb and flow to this track as well. I think Dave's playing on this is absolutely fantastic the oh, song this really, if, if, yeah. you to, if you wanted to say to someone do you want to know uh, in essence in one song what Doug yeah. Rawlings does <laughs> this is it you know mm-hmm. how, this is once again I, I used this expression before he dances around the song in his guitar playing here he dances around this it's just so I don't know I can't think of a great expression it's, it's yeah, no, well, no, there's, a, there's, there's kind of a cliched expression to describe like shred guitar players but you can definitely apply here he has spidery runs you know, it feels yes, like he's like all that. over the fretboard, you know. Um, he's constantly moving. He's constantly going up and down, up and down, up and down, but not in a kind of repetitive, showy-offy sense. Like, it feels legitimate. And, yeah, I mean, I've, you say dancing. I say carouses in my notes. Like, yeah, there is a just such rhythm and uh, flexibility to this song. Like, And I, I love the um, the man who knows what time it is is knocking on the door, and then we get like a... Oh, that's such, yeah. a, that's such a brilliant expression, too, because, you know, we're not going to say, and death is waiting for you, or, or, yeah, yeah, or, yeah. or the, the grim reaper is standing with his sickle. No, the man who knows what time it is. That mm. never takes the obvious road. I love that. No, no, never. Yeah, I agree. And so I guess the other song about death in its obvious sense but once again it's poetic in how they do it is six white horses yes on this actually you know what what i'll do is i'll speak about six white horses in context of where it came in the concert i haven't spoken yet about about the gig i went to so i want to like talk for a couple of minutes please about the concert so as i said the start of february i went to see the two of them play in melbourne here at uh, the palais theater which is uh, an absolutely beautiful old theater it's been like 
I don't know how old it is. Probably, I don't know, 100 years old or something like that. I mean, it's been there all my lifetime. And we're very lucky to get the two of them, you know, coming back out to Australia because, you know, Gillian's fear of flying, like it was 12 years between this time and the last tour that they did. So when they came here, they decided that rather than flying all around the country, they got a car and they drove like, I think by the time they finished the, the tour, they'd travel like about 7,000 kilometers going wow. from one city to the other. I think they flew into Perth. I'm not sure if they flew into Perth or they flew into... Uh, so they might have, so they started off their tour in New Zealand, but then they flew into Perth, I think, and then they drove across the Nullarbor. And most Australians, I don't think, would attempt that because it's all... It's all desert. Mm. But uh, but they said, well, you know, not just because of the fear of flying, but they said that's how you get to know a country. And it wasn't like with a with a road crew or anything like that. It was the two of them driving across the country and, you know, taking photos and putting it up on Facebook and the two of them in their mm. guitar. And it was just absolutely, you know, astounding to read that they would do that. You know, they'd stop at little places, little pubs along the way. and that, That's so uh, them, though, isn't it? It just oh. it just fits with their. I don't know if you've seen the video for the weekend, which was the uh, oh. the main single off Dave's album. But that's I mean, obviously that's not set in Australia. I think they're driving across California. But that's just how I imagine them. Like, there's no pretense. Oh, you, you know, know actually, I, mean? like, I think I think I did. I think I did. Yeah. Uh, about the time, so I didn't even realize that there was any film footage for it. Uh, mm. And then I think I saw that there were there were a couple of uh, Dave Rawlings uh, film clips. So I think I saw, yeah the weekend I can't remember what other one. But yeah yeah no I have seen that. Yeah. It, it uses some of that uh, slow mo. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of like Bruce Bruce Springsteen does not live a Bruce Springsteen life. You know, no matter what he writes about, he isn't that guy. Yeah, whereas, whereas Gillian and Dave, like they are those people. They, and they, are, doing, like, they I, are doing the Bruce Springsteen thing, yeah, for sure. That's what came yeah. to mind. So anyway, so they yeah, so they're driving around the country and you know setting up in they'd come to a city they'd go and perform and then they'd sort of like move on again so they went around the country essentially twice because as well as doing the day uh, the uh, gillian welsh thing they did the dave rawlings machine thing because they, they went and publicly acknowledged they said, well you know we know it's been 12 years since we've been here and you know we realized that uh, gosh there was somebody they they had completely a sally fields thing gosh wow you really like us uh, <laughs> and uh you know so they they did you know, like a couple of weeks as the Gillian Welsh repertoire. And then they went and did a second tour following straight on after that as the Dave Rawlings machine. And I think the the final show that they did was here in Melbourne because, you know, Melbourne was, they, they said on the radio, this is our spiritual home. We can't believe the reception that we've gotten here in Melbourne. So the final show, they met up with, you know, the other members of the Dave Rawlings machine mm. and they did this final big four and a half hour concert where the other members of the machine who were like songwriters in their own right they each did a set and then they did a Dave Rawlings machine set and then they did a Gillian Welsh set and the money had run out I, I couldn't go to that as well but look I've, I've seen yeah. you know, I've done the one concert but uh, that would have been absolutely astounding so yeah, as for the concert that I went to at, um, at the Palais Theatre I've got to say apart from Jeff Buckley I can't recall ever seeing the amount of adulation for mm. a performer or group of performers before they'd even played a note it was almost like screaming girls for, you know for, for a really handsome performer you know really that's what we got for Jeff Buckley all those years ago. And I think maybe for, for Tori Amos as well. But, I mean, I've seen, obviously, you know, enthusiasm, but not the sort of adulation that I saw for these two. It was absolutely incredible. And when they came, they were genuine and forthright. And they didn't try to engage in bullshit banter like, Australia, how you doing? 
It's yeah. great, yeah, which, uh, I mean, I think at one point where Gillian was saying, oh, look, hang on, I've got to retune my guitar, and Dave was saying, oh, I'm not really sure what to say here, and it was sort of refreshing. It's okay, you, you know, just do what you got to do, do what you got to do. They didn't want to patronise their audience, and I, I really, really appreciated that in them. I'd seen some, a lot of uh, either amateur or professional video footage of them on the YouTube, including like a concert, which I'd seen many years ago, done by the BBC, where they played, I think it's St. Luke's Church in London. Yes, yeah. And it, it was, I'm, I'm going to compare, it, it's a strange thing, it's the only way I could ever sort of compare them to the Beatles, but if you were to put them in silhouette, you'd know it was them, because mm. you've already sort of gone and mentioned the way how Gillian looks at Dave with that look of love. On concert, what I saw them do on the night was very much like what I'd seen them do in the video footage where Dave has this way of playing the guitar where like the fretboard, he does, if you've, if you've seen it, you know what I mean. He plays the fretboard in, in a circular motion, especially like mm. when he's doing the, the, the dancing, carousing, I think was the expression you used, sort of expression about his, his guitar playing. So the fretboard, he moves it forward and back and forward and back and forward and back while he's singing into the guitar. And it's it's not like anything I've ever seen anyone else do. And Gillian stands where she's looking down at the fretboard. She only lifts her head up to sing into the mic. And then she looks down again. And it's very distinctive. And if you just like turn the lights off and you just to see their silhouettes, it'd be it's very distinctive. It's what they do. I don't think I've seen anyone sort of do it as methodically as they do it. And she occasionally looks up at him with, you know, that look of that look of love, but it's really more because they are one. They are two parts of the one element. So the concert they did two halves, and I've already mentioned the Revelator as a rock song. And the Revelator and Harrow and the Harvest were the main source of material for the concert. I mean, they did songs from the other albums, obviously, but they did I think most of the material on those two albums. And for me, I think the, the favourites were Red Clay Halo, which was played at what I call bluegrass speed. It was absolutely <laughs> breakneck. It was, I think, the last song before the intermission. It left everyone with, oh, what the hell have I just seen? It, it was, you know, yeah, okay, we might be great songwriters, but guess what? We've actually got great guitar playing chops. And that was like a show-off moment. What they did on with the, the song on that night sort of brought it back to its essence. I thought, all right. These guys own the song. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely magnificent. Time the Revelator, I've already gone and said, was probably uh, my other favourite of the night because it was played like a real rock song. And I, I think you may have already sort of brought up the name Neil Young earlier on the song. And this sounded like a Neil Young song, but not just like Neil Young in acoustic. There's not Neil Young in harvest phase. The two of them sounded like Neil Young and Crazy Horse. Oh, wow. It had that sloppy sort of, and I don't mean sloppy. No, yeah, yeah. In a bad sense. It, it was it, it was a real sloppy Crazy Horse rock song. And it was seven and a half minutes but it, or something like that. But it could have gone on for 10 or 15. And I don't think anyone would have objected. I'd say probably, and it's the only minor quibble, but that's only a personal thing that they didn't do often, girl. But, you know, hell, when a concert's like 10 out of 10, I'd be an ungrateful bastard to to complain about you know uh, and to nitpick about about something like that. I, I adore that song, but you know, hell, every I adore everything that they do. Um, the, so the the song I wanted to highlight it both in an album context and also in the live context was Six White Horses. Six White Horses coming two by two.
I love a song where the music and the lyrics are so at odds. So you, you got this song which sounds like a, and not and not only from a, a a major key perspective, but we got in concert we had Gillian lifting up her skirts and tap dancing, and she'd be uh, banging out percussion with her hands on her thigh, and you know, and she, you know she's dancing. It's in a major key, and you sort of think, all right, this is going to be a an old timey happy sort of song, and it's a song about death. Mm. So I, I love that contrast. And, on this song Dave switched to banjo and uh, you know when Gillian was doing that dancing and doing the thigh slapping thing the crowd went nuts you know yeah. she's doing this percussion thing but they're singing songs like they're singing lyrics like uh, six white horses coming to my tomb came mm-hmm. for my mother mighty how I love her six white horses coming to my tomb I, t- I just love that contrast I think that's absolutely fantastic but really yeah this- and, it, and it's kind of it's kind of wrapped up in pretty as a picture certain as a scripture Yes, it's kind of like you know, spot on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that juxtaposition is one of the great things about art as a whole, really, isn't it? Kind of melding those two things in the little slim Venn diagram slice between. But love this track, absolutely gorgeous track. And six white horses as well. It's kind of it's an odd image, isn't it? Six white horses chasing you and pursuing you. It doesn't as a death metaphor I mean you, you think four horses is the apocalypse if anything if you're going right. to go for a sort of equine death metaphor but uh, the six I mean maybe it has some sort of deeper kind of mythic resonance that I'm not tapping I, into here but. I didn't do the research on that but I'm mm. I'm guessing that there probably is something about six horses but so uh, anyone who's listening to this who's thinking oh you dickheads don't you do your research <laughs> don't you know please write in and let us know oh um, sorry I, I, I literally just googled this and uh, okay. six white horses refer to a few procession specifically those belonging to john f kennedy robert f kennedy and martin luther king oh, wow. uh, yeah and apparently uh, six white horses was originally a song written by larry murray and recorded by tommy cash i don't know if you're aware of tommy cash no, no. um apparently oh sorry he's a younger brother of johnny cash oh okay so uh, probably a direct reference to uh, that then in, in the sort of heritage of that mm-hmm. i guess that's a question i put to you tom if you were to sort of like introduce gillian welsh to someone who said, look, I don't listen to country music, but sell her to me. What would be a song that you would play that would say, yep, this is not only typical of what they do, but this is typical of what makes them great and why you should love them and appreciate them? I would play Hard Times. There was a captain man Used to plow and sing definitely play hard times i think it has the easiest to follow story i think anyone that's familiar with the horrors of industrialization and the marginalization of 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 the individual in the face of machinery you know it's it's a story that anyone could relate to anyone that's read any steinbeck or anyone that's watched sure yeah yeah, you know uh whenever i listen to hard times i always think of grapes of wrath Yes. Like, like, you know, it just, it just, it's impossible not to think of the Joad family toiling away in the uh, Californian orange fields with that track. I think I'll do Hard Times, and I think Hard Times as well, you know, it has that very, very, I 
lot a lot of these songs you said are quite obscure in their lyricism like Tennessee you kind of have to unpick it a little bit I think Hard Times is putting it out on a plate for you Hard Times and I think the beauty I mean I don't want to kind of go too much on the Hard Times already but I think the beauty of Hard Times is the acknowledgement that life in these tough dustful times is impossible so there is no escape physically so therefore you have to escape inward you have to go to your mental terrain which is the only thing you control so Hard Times aren't going to rule my mind because mm-hmm. they've already ruling my life yes. and I, I think you know the chorus is re- really smart and you know it's, I mean I mean, Gillian spells it out for you the, the big machine is picking up speed and all that sort of thing and we're going to get to heaven in our own sweet time I think hard times um, I think that's probably the least oblique of the tracks here and and yet what makes that interesting is you know unlike some sort of bland sort of song well I will overcome hard odds and you know, unfortunately the poor character in this song he doesn't he doesn't no. overcome those those hard times so you know Gillian and Dave sort of you know, being being cruel to their protagonist, but once again, I think it brings something out to uh, the modern listener. It's you know, it's a song that could be you know perfectly at place in the Dust Bowl era, in the in the era of John Steinbeck, and yet here we are in 2016, and it's sadly still relevant. Yeah, and interestingly, I don't I, I don't know if this is just a coincidence on uh, the the, the hard, song Hard Times part, but Hard Times is also quite a famous novel by Dickens. Um, which deals with the industrialization of Victorian England mm. rather than, um, you know, the Dust Bowl, the Appalachian or, you know, the Dixie Line, as it were. But it's a nice coincidence nonetheless. And they both, even though they're addressing different eras, it's exactly the same problem. Sure. Uh, okay, so I think I've sort of gone and you know, um, said as much as I think I can say about the album and Gillian and Dave overall. But do you have any sort of final thoughts there? Tom, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, I, I, I think one of my one of my favourite songs. That I don't think we've spoken about really. Uh, probably, maybe my favourite song on the album is "Dark Turn of Mind." Take me and love me if you want me. Right. kind of encapsulates a lot of the themes on the album that we've spoken about before. It's explicitly Tennessee. I think yes. Dark Turn of Mind and Tennessee are kind of almost the same song. It, not, obviously not musically, but in the sense of like, you know, the character being tempted and all that sort of stuff. But what I love about Dark Turn of Mind, and I want to compare it to Down on the Dixie Line as well, and we were speaking about this earlier, the way Gillian can just do, or Gillian can just do one lyric, and it makes you think so much, so much differently. So... Dark Tone of Mind starts with take me and love me if you want me don't ever treat me unkind because you get the idea that this is a, a woman who has been you know treated badly in the past therefore she has a, a poor a poor view on love and you know sexuality to, to, a, to a broader extent so therefore she's talking about this and again like we're saying uh, the man the man waiting the man who knows what time it is for death a dark turn of mind rather than saying you know you're not chast anymore you've been abused it's just a really really good way of saying it but the song ends interestingly with you know some girls are bright as the morning and some 
some girls are blessed with a dark turn of mind. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a sense that isn't a curse to some people, and it and it throws a whole new periphery on the track. And it's similar in Down Along the Dixie Line, where we have someone who lives up north and someone who can no longer return back, not only symbolically because they've changed, but literally because the old train tracks have been pulled up and, and you know there's no way to go back there. So we have some lovely, lovely images of X's are whying, banjos are strumming, horseflies are humming, freight trains are squalling, eyeballs are bawling. And we don't really get a kind of explanation of who's crying and why. But mm-hmm. there's just, again, similar to Dark Tone of Mind being blessed and then being a curse. There is this just, hang on, why? Like, you know, and 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 Gillian she talks about apple pie in Tennessee. She indulges herself in these American stereotypes that are very satisfying as a listener. Like, you know, I don't find them cliches at all. Talks about mama and pappy. Yes. Uh, I got to Oh, that was a lyric that, Pappy, is she really going there? But I guess if she's going to inhabit the character, yeah, yeah, I, I yeah. Guess. yeah, yeah. And I just, I, I, again, we're talking about the great lines, open stanzas. I spent my childhood walking the wildwood. It, it, you know, childhood wildwood. It's a very ABAB kind of rhyme scheme. But I, I mean, even with Tom Waits, me and Sam often call out bad Tom Waits lyrics. Um, there was one recently on Bow Machine where he's like, "I've done my time in the jails of your arms." Which, which I hated. I thought it, I thought it was clunky as hell. But I think this whole album lyrically is astonishingly good. And I mean, I, I, we, I could go, I could go about this album ad nauseum. And I just, I just want to get across as well. We spent so much time dwelling on the themes, but I think the melody in all of these songs, these songs are so singable. These songs really tap into the joy of singing. How good it feels to sing a great melody. Nice. And there are so many moments in this song that just elevate me. That, that you know, in the same way that music would back then when there weren't other distractions, the, the camp town man of hard times has to sell his horse. And you know, they talk about the uh, the Asheville boys, don't they? Kick up the dust and all that sort of stuff, losing yourself to the to, to the rapture of music. And there's so many moments in this in this album because it's just two instruments, it's just two voices, but they show you that you don't need Dr. Dre, you just need these two 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 guitars. You know, you just you just need you don't need a multi track here. Um, and I think ultimately, Harry Narvis is just a a love song to the power of simplicity. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, simplicity wrapped in complexity, or maybe yes, simplicity yes. wrapped around complexity. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I th- yeah, simplicity. I think. I think. Yeah, you know what I mean. It, it, this isn't a very straightforward album in any way, but it's just. No. End, endlessly listenable to. Hundreds of listens will uh, bring up something new. I guess the only thing I wanted to sort of add to that uh, dark turn of mind is, uh, you know, just like there's lyrically a phrase here and there that can change your whole perspective on a song. And I think here it's not just a lyrical phrase, but there's a chord change. So when you sing, take me and love me if you want me, but don't ever treat me unkind because I had that trouble already and it left me with a dark turn of mind. So there's there's something you wonder, oh, is is that a threat or is, is that something when she says a dark turn of mind is she saying well I'm, I'm fragile but when they the chord that they go into and i haven't sort of you know worked it out but they're going they're playing this sort of melancholy major chord sequence and then they go uh and it left me with a dark turn of mind that chord it sounds sinister as hell it's a, it's a dark tone of chord it's like. a dark, yes exactly <laughs> a, a dark turn of chord a dark turn of lyric it's, it's like, so please don't please don't hurt me because I'm vulnerable is please but, don't hurt me because I'm going to fuck you over if you do. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and crucially 
similar to how you know often the abused sympathize with the abuser's stockholm syndrome the the, the the protagonist in in the bridge which is one of my favorite moments in the whole album the whole oh ain't the night time so lovely to see i just think i think gillian sings that so beautifully and and you'll never know how happy i'll be when the sun goes out. she's yep. identifying with the darkness you know it, it's not necessarily a rejection of it and I, I, the, the images in this album are just outstanding really just so many things stick with you don't they i just I, the, the, there's not a foot wrong the, there is not i i cannot point to any moment in this album when i'm not absolutely enthralled by what's going on fantastic um, all right yeah look, I, i'm i'm completely i'm completely there with you but of course it's no surprise because we just have just discussed this album yeah um, so look if you've been listening to the little snippets throughout the episode and you've uh, enjoyed our discussion and you've not heard the album this is probably really a great album to start off with. Either that or Time the Revelator. I mean, look, they're all wonderful, in, in my opinion. They've all got something to offer, but really, this, I agree with you. I mean, look, I see, I see a lot more merit in Hell Among the Earlings and Revival than you possibly do, Tom, but I do believe that this and Time the Revelator are the pinnacle of, um, of what they've done. I hope that they come out with something soon, but if it's going to be something as brilliant as this, well, you know, take your time, guys. If you do crave more, uh, check out Nashville Obsolete, which I don't know how much you've listened to. I know you said you had listened to it. I, um, I look, I still, I, look, I have listened to it a few times now, mm-hmm. but not to the extent that I've listened to this. Yeah, no, I've, I've listened to uh, Nashville Obsolete probably about half a dozen times in the okay. last, last couple of months, which is, you know, still not bad, but it's not to the extent where I'm sort of starting to really taking everything that's going yeah. on but you know I mean, if you want to check out Dave Rawlings Machine yeah, yeah they're the two albums of Friend of a Friend and uh, yeah Nashville Nashville Obsolete there, there's strings on that but it's not syrupy or or, or no or, or no, anything like that it's it's taste it's tasteful what uh, what goes on there and they're they're more I, I'd say those songs are more wistful rather than than dark there's, there's, there's some straight up positive tracks on there the, the final song uh, Pilgrim and then you have a song called Candy and The Last Pharaoh they're all kind of throwback tracks really they feel they feel a bit more older yeah there's a song called The Weekend which is like almost 11 minutes you know oh, I think it's one of the delicious. longest songs I've ever done yeah yeah great track great track not really um, uh, oh no is it The Weekend no the, weekend, the Weekend's not the 11 minute one no 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 there's, is it called The Journey or something yeah. I'm trying yeah, to I think, think what so, it was yeah, called. Yeah. Something along those lines, yeah. But um, yeah, great album anyway. All right. So that concludes uh, episode 88 uh, of yeah. uh, Love That Album. So, Tom, um, once again, for the listeners out there who uh, have didn't take down notes and don't want to go back to the beginning <laughs> of the show, please tell them, how can they listen to Down in the Hole? Down in the Hole, uh, you can just search us, search Tom Waits Podcast on Google. We're at Tom Waits Podcast on Twitter, on YouTube as well. Just search Tom Waits Podcast Down in the Hole. Also, quickly say that uh, I do another podcast where I, it's an interview-based podcast where I interview famous battle rappers. Uh, I've currently got five episodes out there. And if the words don't flop, king of the dot, or URL mean anything to you, which I, I don't know what the Venn diagram between Dave Rawling and battle rap is. I bet it's pretty slim. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm I'm there, so there must be more than one. Um, yeah, and uh, I've interviewed four, and I'm going to interview way more people, and I've got you know loads of big names involved, which is really exciting for me. So yeah, if you like that, it's called Battle Rap Resume. Um, quite 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 handily, if you search Battle Rap on the iTunes podcast, I'm the only one that comes up. So you know, I've kind of got a little bit of a captive market at the moment, but yeah, Battle Rap Resume. But most of all, if you want to hear more music stuff, it's down in the hole. Myself and Sam. If you like Tom Waits, come check us out and send us an email: tomwaitspodcast@gmail.com 
We love getting in contact. We love people just sending emails. We, we just ask our fans, tell us how you got into Tom Waits because everyone has an interesting Tom Waits story um, and it's awesome to hear back. So, yeah, thank you so much as well, Morris, for having me. This has been um, brilliant as ever. My absolute pleasure. If uh, you want to know how to get in contact, and I certainly hope that you do, then you can uh, look for us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash love that album. Uh, you can send me an email at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. You can download the podcast one of several ways. Obviously, if you're listening to this, you've found one way to do it. But if you want another way because you like diversity, then you can download us, search for Love That Album on iTunes, or you can go to lovethatalbum.blogspot.com. And I think that's pretty much it. And also, while I'm here, I should plug it. Uh, I also co-host another podcast called See Here, that's S-W-H-E-A-R, where I get together with my good friends Tim Merrill and Bernard Stickwell, and we discuss music-related films. So if you wish to give us a listen, uh, you can uh, download us from seehere.podbean.com or once again look for see here on iTunes and uh, we're in March and this month we'll be discussing the film called Color Me Obsessed a film about the replacement so you'll hear what we have to uh, say about that particular film and about the replacements in general yeah, great, great documentary. Uh, well, anyway, so uh, we'll we'll reveal all. I won't reveal any of my thoughts now. I won't, uh, but uh, download that and see what we think there, if uh, you're so inclined. And we should really. Uh, I will be covering the replacements on Love That Album proper for episode 100, and I'll explain at a later date. Although, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, it's probably obvious why we're waiting till episode 100 to do it. Uh, why, why it has a strong part of this show. Anyway, crapped on long enough. We're out of here. Once again, thank you so much, Tom, for uh, joining us. Thank you so much. And you. Uh, you listeners out there, be nice to each other. Listen to some great music. Listen to some shit music. Just try something new. Try something different. Read some music-related books. Watch some films. But most of all, just be nice to each other because the world has got some people who are arguing with each other so much. Uh, I've crapped on long enough. Anyway, see you next month. I'm loving it. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 